the book of Revelation, one revelation, not revelations, plural, just one revelation, and that revelation is of Jesus Christ. And the breakdown of the book, we actually discover in verse 19 there of chapter 1, it says, these things which you have seen, which is referring to chapter 1, things which are, which is Revelation chapters 2 and 3, and things that will be, chapters 4 through chapters 22. So a very simple breakdown of the book, and of course, it breaks down more than that as we get on uh, from chapter 4 to chapter 22, but that verse there is sort of a key that gives us the outline of where the Lord's going in this book. And last week, we saw the benefits of this book. There's a special blessing on the book of Revelation, probably because it's so difficult to study and understand in some ways. But um, if you read it, you hear it taught like you are this morning, and then, of course, if you keep it. And he tells us that the time is near. That word near in the Greek, it means season or error, a dispensation of time. The dispensation of time when these things are going to be taking place, it's that era of time is, is soon. And you say, well, it's been about 2,000 years uh, since this book was written. Well, remember in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8 and 9, it says, But beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord's not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness but it's long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So there is this belaboring where the Lord should be coming back, and he's not, and things get more and more crazy, and we're like, Lord, this is getting ridiculous. Come back. And that's a part of it. He tells us that up front. It's interesting, if you look in the Old Testament, there's a guy by the name of Methuselah who's born, and his name was a prophecy, meaning at his death, then judgment's going to come upon the world. And Methuselah keeps living and living until 969 years old. The old man who lived longer on this earth than any other man was Methuselah because the Lord was long-suffering, not wanting to bring judgment upon the world. And, you know, Methuselah just keeps living and living till ridiculously almost a 1,000 years old. And finally, enough's enough. And Noah goes into the ark and the flood comes and destroys the world. And uh, we're going to see that same thing here. It tells us in Ezekiel that God does not rejoice in the death of the wicked. He wishes all men to come, but not all men will come. But he wants that, and he's going to belabor the point. Well, here today in verse 4, and John, John the apostle who's writing this, Irenaeus and Clement tell us that During the reign of Emperor Domitian, the Roman uh, emperor, that John was banished to the island of Patmos. It was basically a slave island where men were forced into a lifelong labor in the mines. And very possibly, even though John was over 100, he had to go to this intense labor. But it was during that time, 95-96 A.D., that he received this revelation from the Lord. And he says to the seven churches which are in Asia. Now, when we think of Asia, we think of the oriental part of the world. But that's not what he's referring here. Actually, it would be what we call today Asia Minor, which is the country of Turkey. And in particular, if you look at these seven churches, it's the western part of modern-day Turkey. 
This was the established male root of the day. But in particular, God had a message to these seven churches, which were a type of you and me. And he has a message to through these churches for them that day, but also for us as well today, that he writes to these seven churches. And then also he says, grace and to you and peace. This is a very common greeting as you study the New Testament. And you always find it in this order, grace and then secondly, peace. You won't find peace and then grace. There's always grace and then peace. Grace is God's favor towards us, even though we don't deserve it. It's his gift. It's his blessing. It's his hand upon us and forgiveness and mercy, even though we're not worthy of it, even though we don't deserve it. You hear people sometimes say, well, the Lord helps those who helps themselves. Guys, the Bible does not say that. As a matter of fact, it's the opposite of grace. I I think it's right from the, the pit of hell, such a saying. Because grace comes to us when we're flat on our face. When we're stuck in our sin or stuck in depression or we're making horrible choices and life comes caving in on us, God in his grace comes to us. And he loves us and he forgives us. His mercies are new every morning. He remains faithful even when we're not faithful because he can't deny himself. And when you come to believe in that God who loves you, who's ready to forgive you, who wants to heal you, who wants to show mercy to you every day, and when you can come and put your faith in that God, then you will have peace. When you really come to trust in him, to forgive your sins, when you really come to trust in him, to be patient with you until the end, then you'll have peace. Now in the Hebrew, the word peace is shalom. It doesn't simply mean to not be at war, to have a peace or a calmness, but it means a wholeness, a completeness, that your life would be completely made whole. There'd be no cracks or voids in it. And when we put our trust in the Lord, that's what we'll discover, that all the cracks in our life, all the broken pieces, God will mend and make something far better than ever before. And God wants you to have His grace. And God wants you to have His peace. He's made you to be a whole, completed person. And it comes from Him, and only from Him can such a thing be. And it says here of a title of Him, who is who was, and who is to come. This is one of many titles we'll see, basically saying he's the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega. He's always has been and he always will be. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Very simply, the seven spirits, I believe, are seven angels. It says in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 7, he has made the angels spirits that they might minister unto us. And here in verse 20, he says the mystery of the seven stars, which we saw on the right hand, the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And I think the seven spirits here are simply the seven angels that are the ministers uh, unto the seven churches. And uh, some try to tie this in to Isaiah 11, verse 2. It says the spirit of the Lord and And then the spirit of wisdom and understanding, it goes on. And they try to tie those in. And maybe they do go together. um, But it's a little bit of a a stretch for me to see how all that works together. And uh, 
And sometimes they end up basically saying, yes, there's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, but the Spirit is seven. And there's seven spirits, not just one Holy Spirit. And that's heresy. And Benny Hinn said, no, there's actually an extra three on top of that, so there's actually nine persons of the Trinity. And, uh, of course, if you're taking your theology from Benny Hinn, you've got a lot of problems anyway. Uh, this is the least of them. But you'll see this number seven sort of continually repeated throughout the book because seven is the number of completion. There's seven days in a week. Then the eighth day is actually the first day of the new week. There's seven notes in a scale. It goes A to G. Then the next note, A, it starts over A again, which is the next set of seven. Eight is the number of new beginnings. Seven is number of completion. And here we are in the book of Revelation, which is the completion of all things. So you're going to see seven churches, seven spirits, seven candlesticks, seven stars, seven lamps, seven seals, seven horns, seven eyes, seven angels, seven trumpets, seven thunders, seven thousand, seven heads, seven crowns, seven plagues. Uh, There's a lot of sevens in here because, again, this is the completion of all things. In verse 5, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, Jesus is a faithful witness of all the things that the Father has given to him to share with us. We studied this last week, going through a list of the verses in the Gospel of John, looking at all the things that Jesus received from the Father and declared them unto us. In Matthew 11, he says, Nobody knows the Father unless the Son reveals them, reveals the Father to him. And that's exactly what Jesus did. In John 1.18, it says, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. Jesus on this earth has declared the full nature of God. And a matter of fact, in John 14, Philip, one of the apostles, said to Jesus, Show us the Father and that will suffice. And Jesus said, Philip, have I been so long with you and you don't know me? In other words, you know, we're seeing a, a fraction of God in you, Jesus, But we want to see the totality of God. And Jesus corrected Philip and said, no, 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 no. We have one God. And you see all of God in the Father, all of God in Jesus, and all of God in the Spirit. And if you have seen me, there's nothing more to see within the nature of God. You've seen it all because Jesus is a faithful witness who's declared it all. And if you read the prayer of Jesus in John 17... This is what he continually repeats. In verse 6 through 8, he says, I have manifested your name, which in the Hebrew mindset is synonymous with nature. I've manifested your name or your nature to the men you have given to me out of the world. They were yours. You You gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have known all things which you have given me for from you. So they have known all things which you have given me from you. For I have given them the words which you have given me, and they've received them, and have known surely that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. Then the final verse of that in John 17, 26 says, I've declared to them your name. I will declare it, that the love which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Jesus is the faithful witness, and declared unto us, All that's in the Father, he's declared to us all that is from the Father. In him, the fullness has been declared in Jesus Christ. And also it goes on there in Revelation 1.5 to say, not only is Jesus Christ the faithful witness, but he's the firstborn from the dead. 
Now, some look at this and they try to just see the word first. Oh, he's the first one from the dead. But is that true? No, it's not. When you look in the Old Testament, God raised people from the dead. In the New Testament, in Jesus' own ministry, he raised people from the dead. So to say Jesus was the first one ever raised from the dead would not be accurate. So what does that mean, the firstborn? So you look at the word now, it's actually a title of firstborn. You've got to understand, going from one language to another language, there's often a breakdown because there's just not words there for whatever reason, sometimes culturally. Sometimes uh, it's one more sophisticated culture to a lesser sophisticated culture or a a more advanced language to a lesser advanced language. But within the the mindset of the the writers, the the concept of the highest in rank or the preeminent one wasn't there. The way they expressed that was saying the firstborn. Because in the Jewish culture, the first son born was everything. Remember the story of Jacob and Esau? Esau was born not even a second before Jacob. He actually had a hold of Esau's hill when they were born. And Jacob saw that he had no favor from his dad. Uh, And so he went in and acted like he was Esau. Remember Esau was out hunting. He put on the skin and he went in. And after a little bit of convincing, Isaac, his dad, said, Okay, uh, I'll put the blessing upon you. And he lays his hands upon Jacob, thinking he's praying for Esau, and blesses him. Later, Esau comes in. Here's what happened. Went in and said, no problem. Just bless me too. And Isaac said, there's nothing left. There is no blessings left. Because everything went to the son, the firstborn son. Got it all. Um, By way of example, look, if you would, over to... um, Genesis with me. Turn to the very first book of the Bible. We're in the last. We'll go to the first. And you can go and say, what did you study? Genesis to Revelation. We studied it all. (laughs) Genesis 48. Starting there in verse 14. Genesis chapter 48. There in verse 14. Then Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on Ephraim's head, who was the younger, and his left hand on Manasseh's head, guiding his hand, knowing for Manasseh was the what? Firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and his sons, and he went on. In verse 17 now, now when Joseph, evidently his eyes were closed there in his father's prayer, he peeks, and he sees that his father's right hand is on the head of Ephraim, who's the younger. And it displeased him, and he took a hold of his father's hand, removed it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head, put the right hand on the older son, the firstborn son. And Joseph said to his father, Not so, my father, for this is the one who was firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know, for he also will become a people, and he also will be great. But truly his younger brother shall be what? Greater than he. And his descendants shall become the multitude of nations. So Ephraim is going to become the preeminent, the highest ranking, even though he's the younger son. Now turn to Jeremiah 31.9 with this in mind. Ephraim's the younger, Manasseh's the firstborn. But then in Jeremiah 31 verse 9. He says, For I am a father to Israel 
And what? Ephraim is my firstborn. Now, what's that mean? He's the first one created? No, Adam was. What does he mean? Ephraim's the firstborn. Ephraim is the highest rank. He is the one that's going to have the, the preeminence over the other tribes. And sure enough, as history goes on, that's exactly what happened. After Solomon, the country split into two. Judah and Benjamin became the country of Judah. And the other ten tribes became the country of Israel. But as you study in the Old Testament and in the prophecies, it's, not, it's often not called Israel. It's often called Ephraim. And so sometimes you're reading that and they'll say, I know Ephraim, or we went to Ephraim. And it's like, what, what's, what's he referring to Ephraim? That was actually, that, that one tribe so overshadowed the other ten tribes that it, that's, that country became known as that. And then we get in the book of Revelation, we're going to see again. Ephraim has a high ranking uh, all the way to the very end. One more verse on this subject in Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. Looking at verse 15 to verse 18 there. Colossians chapter 1. There in verse 15 to 18. And it says in Colossians 1.15. He is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn over all creation. And now again, at the first look, oh, Jesus is the first created being. This is the way they look at it. Jehovah Witnesses say Jesus was the first one created. He was the first angel created. And then after that, all all the other creation was made after him. But that's not looking at the title firstborn. They're just saying he's the first. But that's not what it's saying. And if you continue on to verse 18 in context, you'll see that. For by him all things were created that were in heaven and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist. He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, notice, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. So, again, he's not the firstborn from the dead. We've already showed that. But is he the greatest one that's ever raised from the dead? It says in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ did not raise from the dead, we would all still be in our sins. In the same way, it's not saying here that Jesus was created or he was born and that's the way his creation began. It's saying he is the preeminent one. He is the highest ranking one over over all creation, not in creation, but over all creation. For example, we, we, we do that. We call people the number one, the ace, the top gun. We have all kinds of terminologies like that. What's, what's the title of the president's wife? The first lady. Does that, does that mean she's the first woman that ever came to America? <laughs> I don't think so. It's just, it's a way of explaining that the president is the number one highest ranking American that represents our country. And his wife, because she is the president's wife, is the number one woman representing our country. I've always wondered if we get a woman president, is he going to become the first man? I don't know how that's going to work out. But uh, this is all this is saying. It was a beautiful title here. Jesus is the one, the highest ranking of all that's raised from the dead. Because he raised from the dead, we also shall have life. Well, going back to Revelation there, chapter 1 and verse 5 once again. Our Lord Jesus Christ is the faithful witness. 
He's the firstborn from the dead. And notice what else. He's the ruler over the kings of the earth. The Bible tells us in Hebrews that the Father is going to lay all things under his feet. In Revelation 11.15, it says, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. In Psalms 2, the whole psalm is talking about all the kingdoms of the world and all the kings of the world will be submitted unto him. In Isaiah 9, it says, Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And what? The government shall be upon his shoulder. And then skipping down to verse 7 there of Isaiah 9, it says, Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order and establish it in judgment and justice from this time forward and forever. That Christ is going to physically rule and reign and all the kingdoms of the world will be submitted unto him. Now, it's the truth right now. We don't see it. But it is the facts. Matter of fact, in Proverbs 21, 1, it says, The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord, and as the rivers of a water turns, so he turns him as he wishes. In Romans chapter 13, it tells us that all authorities that exist are in submission under God. He's either allowed them to be there or he has placed them there, but either way, he has power over them. At any point he chooses to utilize that power, he can do it. But one day we will physically see him as king and ruling all the kings and the kingdoms of this world. Although it's the truth now, we will see it literally later. And then the final one there in verse 5, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. I love this title. He loved us. It doesn't say he washed us and then he loved us. It says he loved us. And because he loved us, he washed us with his own blood. I want you to think about that a minute. Because so often when we talk about Christ dying for us, people often say, well, that was his duty. That's his job. Of course he had to do it. He's God. He does those kind of things. But we miss the whole fact that he loved us. And because he loved us, he washed us. And because he loved us so much, he was willing to shed his blood that we might be pure and sinless before him. That's a mind-boggling thing when you really think about it, especially in our day. In our day... We have no problem throwing away relationships, throwing away people, because I had to go out there and find my soulmate. So people, you know, they'll throw away their parents and go try to find some other parent figure. They'll throw away their spouse and go try to find a new spouse. Quit that job, move to that state, do this, do that, because I'm going to find a place and I'm going to find a group of people that I can love. Now that I live in this state or in this house or have that job or have that wife or have that kind of kids, that kind of parents, now I can pour my love into them because they're lovable. They're the kind of people that I can love. That's the kind of job I can love. That's the kind of place I can love living. And that's not what Christ found. Christ came to a world and there wasn't anybody lovely. a matter of fact, in Romans chapter 5, it tells us, When we were still without strength. In other words, we didn't care that we were sinning against God. We could care less. We had no desire to please God, to confess our sins, to submit to God. We had just, we didn't care. We had no strength. 
But in due time, Christ died for what? The ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own what? Love towards us. And that why we were still sinners. Christ died for us. Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. It goes on to call us that we were enemies. We were ungodly. We were sinners. We were enemies. We had no strength. And yet, because of his love for us, he came to us. He came into human flesh. Boy, that's hard to imagine. God Almighty in perfection and beauty. No pain, no sorrow, no suffering. He came into human flesh. The Bible tells us in Isaiah 53 that his whole life was a man acquainted with grief and sorrow. That when man looked at Jesus, this is what it says in Isaiah 53, it looked as if God had smitten him and afflicted him. It looked like, man, I don't know what that guy did to tick off God, but God's only job is to make his life miserable. That's the way it looked. That's the way Jesus went. It tells us in Hebrews 2 and Hebrews 4, it's because he could sympathize with us, that he could comfort us, he could help us because he's been through it all. Whether it's difficulty or suffering or temptation, he's been through it all. It's it's an amazing thing when you really contemplate it. Because Jesus at 12 years old said to Mary and Joseph, I'm about my father's business. He understood what his life on this planet was for. And the Bible said he did not come to be served, but to serve. And that's exactly what he did. A man acquainted with grief and sorrow, and he served and he served and he served. He gave and he gave and he gave. And he understood the whole time that it was going to culminate in beatings and whippings and to be crucified upon a cross. We see him telling his apostles way before the fact, guys, I'm going to Jerusalem and it's going to be bad. I'm going to be taken. I'm going to be killed there. We see him in the garden. Father, if there's any other way for this cup to pass, let it be. And the Bible tells us that the blood veins begin to break in his body. He was sweating intensely in prayer. Father, is there any way? And the blood vessels began to break and blood began to come right out of the pores of his skin with the sweat. His own blood had to be shed. The Bible says there's no forgiveness unless there's a shedding of the blood and there's life in the blood. And Jesus had to come into human flesh to have blood soaring through his body that he could offer it as a sacrifice for our forgiveness. And this is why it really gets me when people, and often people claiming to be Christians, will say, well, you know, it doesn't really matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. Who am I to judge the Hare Krishnas or the Hindus or the Muslims or the whatever? Whatever way you choose, as long as you do it sincerely, that's all that matters. Do you realize that what that makes God? Here is his son, Father, if there's any way for this cup to pass. Well, you know, there's already about 300 ways out there for people to go to heaven anyway, but ah, what the heck, let's make one more. Go ahead, Jesus. You make 301 ways of getting to heaven. You go ahead and be beaten and crucified. And let's, you know, because, you know, people need a variety. And we need to give them one more opportunity here. Do you realize that is a slap in the Father's face? What's that make Jesus? It makes him a fool. It makes him a dummy because here he was only giving one more way when there's already hundreds of other ways out there doing the same thing. 
Guys, let me tell you, if there was any other way that man could go to heaven, be right with God for all of eternity, Jesus Christ would not have died. There's only one way for us to go to heaven, and that is if we've been washed from our sins. There's only one way our sins could be washed away and taken away, and that is by the blood of a perfect sacrifice. And Jesus Christ is the only one that ever could or ever will be able to fit that bill, the perfect Lamb of God, with no sin, no blemish, no spot, who came as our substitute and died for us upon the cross with his own blood. Why? Because he needs you? No. Because he wants you. Because he loves you. He loves you. That's why he did it. There's something beautiful in the prodigal son story. You know, when the prodigal son says, Dad, I can't wait for you to die. Give me the inheritance now so I can get out of here. And off he goes out of the country, spends his money on wild living. And then he's finally broke. He's in the pig pen wanting to eat the pig's food. And he wakes up going, I should go back to my dad's house. Maybe he'd make me a servant there. And he comes back. And as he's coming, remember the father starts running towards him. And he has his little speech ready. All I want to be is the lowliest servant in your house. And the dad grabs him and puts the robe around him and the ring on his finger and the sandals and says, let's have a great feast. My son who was lost is now found. The beautiful thing about that story is this guy was not worthy of that. If the father had said, "Ah, I thought you'd come crawling back sometime. You were awfully foolish when you left and I knew it wouldn't be long until you ended up in a foolish condition. Yeah, you probably want a job, huh? Well, you just go out there and lay on the floor in the servant's quarters and I'll keep an eye on you over the next few months or years to see if you're ever worthy to become one of my servants. Then maybe after a couple of years, uh, you can come back in the house, but just sleep in the guest room. Or what, I mean, that would all made sense. But what happens is he grabs him and he, because of his love for him, he doesn't care about the pig smell. He doesn't care about where he's been or what he's done. He loves his son. He embraces his son. He brings his son into full position, into full status. And that's love. And so often today in our society, we we just, that son upset me. Get rid of that son. That wife bothered me. I'll get a new wife. That, you know, whatever. And it's, it's this whole concept that's absolutely the opposite concept of our Lord. Because he loved us, he came into human flesh and he endured it and he endured it and he endured it and he went through it until ultimately he was crucified. Why? Because he wanted a bride. But the bride he wanted was a sinner. The bride he wanted was without strength. She could care less about the relationship. The bride he he wanted was ungodly and an enemy. The bride that he desired was anything but lovely. (laughs) Anything that was worthy to be the bride of Christ. But yet he took her. And because he loved her, he did what it took to bring her to the place that she would desire and be that bride. And then it tells us in Ephesians 5 that now Christ, through the washing of the water of the word, continues that he might present her white, without blemish, without spot, the bride in the beautiful white dress. That's us. Christ is making sure we're always in that white dress, ready for the day of our wedding. It says in 1 John 1, 7, 
that we walk in the light as he is in the light and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us and continues on cleansing us from all our sin. Because of his love for us, he has washed us and he continues washing us. How? Through his own precious blood. What a radical, radical concept. And then in finishing up here today in verse 6, he says this, and he has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. This blows my mind. I mean, wasn't it enough to love us? Wasn't it enough to wash us? Wasn't it enough to make us presented so we could go to heaven? But no, he has to adopt us into his family. He has to make us his kids. And if that weren't enough, he makes us kings. He makes us royalty. I, I, you know what? I am a sucker. The whole king, queen thing, I am a sucker. Any special on Princess Diana or Prince Charles or whatever, I mean, I'm watching it. You put it on the front of the magazine, I'll buy it. I'm a sucker for that, you know? You have a movie and there's swords in it, I watch it. I, I, I'm a romantic guy. The whole kings and queens and sword fighting, the whole thing, I love it. And so I love the fact that here is our God. He makes us kings. Later, we're going to see a picture where we're coming with Christ. He's on a white horse in front of us, and we're all coming with him through the clouds on horses. I've got a sword, man. Got my little knight uniform. I'm a king. Got my little armor on, you know. What a, what a blast it's going to be. It's mind-boggling that the Lord would make us a king. King David, who was just a nobody little shepherd boy, and God made him a king, and And in 2 Samuel 7, David's just blown away and he begins to worship and he says, Who am I, Lord? O Lord God. And what is my house that you've brought me this far? And yet this was a small thing in your sight, O Lord God. And you have spoken of your servant's house for a great while to come. And he goes on, just in awe. He says this in Psalms 113, verse 7 and 8. He said, He raises the poor out of the dust. And he lifts the needy out of the ash heap. The old King James says, dunghill. And he, that he may seat him with the princes, the princes of his people. He comes to the poor and they're in their dust. If you've been to poor parts of the world, you know that's true even to this day. They live in the dust. And then you came to me and I was in the dunghill, the garbage dump. If you've been around the poor of the world, you know people live in the garbage dump. To this day, they scavenge out of the garbage dumps to try to get by. But the word here is a unique word. It literally means you pick up the doo-doo, you move it to the side, and you scrape the dry doo-doo off the ground. And that's, David says, that was me. And then you place me as a king and a prince, not just that, but of your people. And that's what God has done for every one of us. He's come and taken us out of our (laughs) poo-poo, out of our dung. And he didn't just wash us. He didn't just make us his kids. He didn't just give us heaven, but he made us royalty before him. And then the next one really blows my mind. He made us priest. In 1 1 Peter 2, verse 5. It says, you also, as living stones, are being built up into a spiritual house and, listen, a holy priesthood. 
to offer up spiritual sacrifices able, uh, acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And then in 1 Peter 2.9, he goes on to say, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. Within the priesthood, under the tribe of Levi, you had Aaron's sons who were of the Kohathites, and they were the, the high priesthood. They got to go into the Holy of Holies as a high priest. They got to carry the, the most sacred articles that no one got to see except the high priest once a year. And he's saying that's who you guys are, not just the priesthood, but the top priesthood who gets to come into the holiest things. Now, this is radical because if you go back to the Old Testament, God made it very clear that you have the tribe of Judah, which would be the kingly tribe, and you have the tribe of Levi, which is the priestly tribe, and the king could never take part in the priestly duties. As a matter of fact, in 1 Samuel 13, Saul, who was a Benjamite, offered a sacrifice. And when Samuel showed up, he freaked out and said, you'll never be king again. God's ripping the kingdom away from you. And so he did. And then you have King David later on from the tribe of Judah and then Solomon. And boy, they blessed things and set it up. And then later you have a guy by the name of King Uzziah. He was a righteous king and the whole nation was blessed and they prospered radically under King Uzziah. But King Uzziah, this godly man, he wanted more. And one day he determined in his heart, I'm going to go into that temple because only the priest could go into the temple. People could come on the outside and offer sacrifice. They couldn't go on the inside. And so he grabbed a cistern, he had some incense in it, and the priests were all there physically trying to fight him off, and he just got rid of them all, and he stepped into the temple, and as soon as he did, God struck him with leprosy. They quickly rushed him out, and he ended up living in seclusion in his palace the rest of his life. The country continued to prosper. He was a righteous man. But he had this incredible longing in his heart to go in and be what the priests were and to do what the priests did. And he had all this royalty and all this power and all this fame, but it wasn't enough. He wanted to go into the sanctuary and be a priest. And God said, no, it can't be done. King David felt this same way. In Psalms 84, he says, how lovely is your tabernacle, O Lord of hosts. My soul long, yes, even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. I'm just in agony that there's this limitations. I'm in agony that I want to go in. I want to be a part. I want to go into the Holy of Holies. I want to go into the courts. I want to be a part of the most sacred and intimate part of worship, but I can't. And and my whole body is aching because of it. And then he says in verse 3, even the sparrow has found a home and a swallow a nest for herself where she lay her young. So at this time they didn't have the temple, they had the tabernacle. And in this tent with the poles and the curtains and, and all, the birds would make their nest up there. And he looks outside knowing he can't go into the inside and there's the bird looking in, observing the priest in the temple and doing the priestly duties and And David's just saying, I would leave my palace to be that little sparrow that I could build my house right there in the corner of the tabernacle to just live there in the presence of God and just to be observing everything that happens in the temple. And then he says in verse 4 of Psalms 84, blessed are those who dwell in your house. Oh, those priests, they have no idea how blessed they are. The priests are all going, boy, look at the king in that palace and, you know, royalty, woohoo, you know. Man, how blessed they are. And, and King David saying, you have no idea. I would trade that in in a minute. He goes on to say in verse 10, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand years. David said, I'd rather be a priest for one day 
to go into the temple than to be a king for a thousand years. And then he says this, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God. If I can't be a priest, make me the lowliest of priests. And my whole job is just opening the door that the priest could go in. But at least I could open the door to the temple. I could touch the handle of the door. And I could maybe sneak a peek as they're walking in as I open the door for them. Even that would be better than being a king in this palace. What longing. And I love the fact that the Lord didn't just make us a king. But he also satisfy the longing of our heart and made us a priest unto our God. This was a a rather heated issue amongst the Jews. They actually put down Jesus because of this. They said, okay, you're saying Jesus is of the tribe of Judah, right? That way he could be the Messiah, right? But you also said that Jesus offered himself up as a sacrifice. That's That's anathema. If he's of the tribe of Judah, he cannot offer a sacrifice. And Paul comes back in the book of Hebrews and says, aha, remember in Genesis 14, there was a guy by the name of Melchizedek who came to Abraham. And who was he? He was the king of Salem and what? The priest of God most high. And he says, Jesus is of the lineage of Melchizedek, who has no beginning of days or ending of days. That was Jesus. And as he came into Abraham, he offered him the wine. He offered him the bread, communion, if you would. And after that time, Abraham was a different man, a totally different focus on life. And God was able to give him the promise in the very next chapter of chapter 15 of Genesis. And so we now are of a higher priesthood of a higher lineage we're not just of the kingship of a man we're not of the priesthood of the levites but notice we are kings and priests to who his god and father we are heirs of christ we also as jesus we're the king of salem the and priest to the god most high what an incredible blessing the Lord put upon us. And that's why we begin to worship and praise. Notice the last part of verse six. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Oh man, how can we just have to stop and worship? Cleansed us with his own blood. He made us his kings and priests unto himself. How awesome, how radical. To him be glory. The Hebrew, the Hebrew word for glory is the word kabod. It means Weight or a weightiness, a substance to it. It's funny, there was a very difficult time in Israel and one of the priests had a child and he died and his wife named him the child Ichabod. Icha means without, kabod, without glory, Ichabod. We have a fable and it's called Ichabod Crane. You guys know that story? Sort of a scary story about a headless guy. Sort of a yucky story actually. But Ichabod... In that story is a perfect picture of somebody without glory. He thought he was the best looking guy. He was ugly. He thought he was all strong and charming. And he was just a little wimpy, frail guy. He acted like he was all brave outwardly, but he was a coward. He acted like he was all disciplined. He was a lazy sloth. He acted like he was all intelligent and he was a dummy. But he thought in his mind, I'm the most intellectual, brave, charming, and I should have the most beautiful girl in town. And in his mind, 
That's where he was. But in reality, although he thought in his mind he had a weightiness, he had no weightiness. The reality is, is all the weightiness, all the kabod is in Jesus. Every one of us are born into this world innately sensing there's something missing. There's a hole in our life. There's an emptiness there. You often see kids bitter at their parents because you didn't fill that hole. You should have been this kind of dad or that kind of mom. And and I'll tell you what, I've seen some great parents and their kids are still bitter at them because you should have been, you know. Well, you didn't go to every baseball game. I went to 1,335 of them, but two two of them you missed. And I would be fulfilled today if you had been there, you know. I mean, it it doesn't matter. It's because they're, they're saying you didn't do everything you should have done as a dad or I wouldn't be feeling this emptiness. Guys, it's not true. And so then they start to look for it, whether in education, intellectually, that's going to fill me up, making money, a job, cars, houses, travel, whatever it is. And then they get married, and then their spouse is to fill that hole in their life. And their spouse can't do it. Have kids. Oh, the kids will fill the hole in my life. Right. They just make it bigger. Suck the life out of you. As wonderful as they are. And uh, the reality is the only place you will find totality is when you are glorying in Jesus and he is your glory. It says, Christ in you is your hope of what? Glory. Christ in you. When in him you are living and moving and having your being, you will sense the weightiness about your character, about your heart, about your life. The, in the, you've been feeling like a little drop in the midst of the ocean, this little insignificant drop in the midst of this planet. But you'll sense your significance when you find why God has created you. He has made you. You were not evolved. He knitted you in your mother's womb for a very specific plan. And when you come to give him all glory and honor in him, you live and move and have your being, you will find not your life is in big Ichabod, but your life is the Kabod. You'll find yourself with the weightiness about your life and then also the dominion that Christ is the Lord of your life. He is in charge of your life. So often when people come to Christ, they're looking for that hole in their life to be filled and they give their lives to Christ and it is. And they go to the word and they're filled. They go to prayer and they're filled. They go to church and they're filled with the worship and the word and the fellowship. There's this deep, rich, heavy, weighty thing in their heart and their mind. And they're just full of joy. And they sense that their life has meaning and purpose. But then in time, they they start to fill that hole in their life again. Why? Because they haven't given him the dominion. Satan is trying to get our focus off of God to not seek him first to not honor him first, to not put him first, to not make him the focus of our life. He's trying to bump Christ off the throne of our hearts and and say pleasure, sex, entertainment, sports, education, family, whatever it might be, even great things, good things. But yet they're trying to take the focus off of Christ having all dominion. He alone is calling the shots in your life. And if something other is your master passion calling the shots in your life, then you don't have the kabod, you don't have the glory. And all of a sudden, the weightiness that was there is no longer there. 
the weightiness that was there when you read the word, when you prayed, when you came and fellowshiped with the believers, when you heard the message or fellowshiped afterwards. The weightiness isn't there. And it's not because of God. It's not because of his word. It's not because you've learned everything there is to learn. It's because of you need to come back and recognize his power and his authority. I love that story of Nebuchadnezzar. Remember the first world ruling empire, the Babylonian empire, Nazaria, Iraq today is the location. But he dominated the known world at that time. And there he was upon the rooftop looking at this great kingdom. And while the words were in his mouth, look at all that I have accomplished, God struck him. And for seven years, he became like an animal, eating the grass like a cow. And at the end of a seven-year period, it tells us in Daniel chapter 4, verse 34, at the end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my understanding returned to me and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever for his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the armies of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and no one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven of all whose works are truth and his ways just and those who walk in pride, he is able to put down. And then it goes on to say that after that, God established him back to his kingdom and blessed him tenfold more than he was ever blessed. Not only did he get his weightiness back when he honored God, but he even had a greater weightiness. And it's interesting because after that, Belshazzar, his grandson, took the throne and, and he dishonored the Lord and he began to party and took the vessels that only the priests were to have out of the archives from Jerusalem and they began to drink out of them and all of a sudden this hand appeared and wrote on the wall, meanie, meanie, tekel, you farson. And they all freaked out, the presence of God and they finally had to go to old Daniel and say, come on over and tell us what this means and Daniel came in and said, you know, Belshazzar, you know exactly how God dealt with Nebuchadnezzar. He told you that story. You know how he gave honor and glory to God. And even though you knew all of this, you did not give honor and glory to God. But instead, you've worshipped the gods of gold and silver, and you've blasphemed by drinking out of the vessels that only the priests are to drink of. You took them out of the archives. I'll tell you what that means. It means you've been weighed in the balances and come up lacking. There's no substance with you and God's going to blow you away. And that night he lost his throne. It was gone. I find it interesting. In Romans 1, read that chapter starting with verse 18 to the end. But it says this. Even though men knew that God was God, they could see it by all of creation, a big giant arrow pointing to the fact that he is Lord and God, creator of all things. But yet they suppressed the truth and they did not give him glory. In all their wisdom, they spouted foolishness and they worshiped the creation rather than the creator. They worshiped man and creeping things. And it says, because they would not honor him as God or give him glory, God stepped back 
and let them do what was ever they wanted to do. And you know what came of it in Romans? Men turned to men. Women turned to women in homosexual relationships. It's interesting. The Bible says that these last days are going to be like the days of Sodom and Gomorrah, which was a homosexual permeated society that just sort of imploded upon itself because of all the other wickedness that comes from it. Read the last verse of Romans 1. It gives a list of all the wickedness that comes from that kind of society of lifestyle where men are so wicked that they do such abominable acts. The Bible warns us of these things. And then the Bible also says in the last days, remember Lot's wife. It says that she went up as she went with the angels to get out of Sodom and Gomorrah for God destroyed it and she went back longingly, wishing that she could have her materialism and her stuff and her comforts of Sodom. Even though all the wickedness was there, I can deal with the wickedness. I just want my, you know, couch and my plasma TV, you know. I can deal with the perversion of the world. And we've got to be careful in these last days, guys. The Bible gives the epitaph that men would be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. But yet a form of godliness, but with no power, no weightiness, no reality in their dead religion. Christ is offering you himself. Christ is offering you a relationship with him. Christ is offering you a significance and a weightiness. If you will put all glory and honor and focus and give him the reins of your life. Jesus said, why do you call me Lord? But yet you don't do what I say. Don't call me Lord because I'm not your Lord because you don't submit to me as Lord. It's like when somebody says, I love you, I love you. But then they treat you horrible. (laughs) It's like nails on a chalkboard. See that in marriage counseling often you see some guy going, I love my wife, she knows I love her. And she's like, stop saying that, you just hit me today. You just committed adultery on me last week and, and you tell me you love me. It doesn't mean, your words don't mean anything. They have no meaning. God's not saying, take a test and say, who has all glory and dominion? Ha fill in the blank, Jesus Christ, I got it right, woo, you know. He's not saying that. He has all glory, he has all dominion. That's a fact. One day every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess. Satan himself will be bowing there proclaiming Jesus as Lord. The fact is, is does he have the dominion of your heart right now? Is it him? Is he, are you giving to him all glory, all honor, all praise? Or have you lost your focus? Have you lost your direction that it's him who's to be calling the shots? It's for him you're to be living and moving and have your being. It's his desire and his will that you're living for. If not, you need to repent. You need to do like the prodigal son. Get up out of your pig pen and come back to the Father and let him give you that wonderful reception once again. Let's all pray. Lord, we come back to you today right now. We look, Lord, at... How devastating a society can be when they don't give you glory and honor. How about individual people right here? Right now, maybe not on the same scale as the world around us, but on a different scale, the weightiness is gone and we've learned to live with a a life without substance. We've learned to live in existence without significance because 
I don't care if I affect or a blessing or am I, am I a city set on a hill that can't be hidden? I don't care anymore. Lord, help us revive our hearts here today that we would not be satisfied until we are in that deep fellowship with you And there is an incredible substance about our character, about our nature, about our words, about our life. That there's a radical weightiness in everything we say and do. Lord, search our hearts right now. See if there be any wicked way in us. Lead us in that way that is eternal, everlasting. As all heads are bowed this morning right now. It's between you and God. You need to be honest right now. Christ is not my all in all. I am not seeking him first in his kingdom. I'm letting the pleasures of this life, I'm letting the desire for other things come in and choke out that substance of what Christ wants to do in my life. My toys, my money, my pleasures, my vices, they've dragged me down to the pit and I want today to be revived. It says repent that times of refreshing might come. Receive Christ right now into your life. Lord, forgive me. Lord, I come to you today. I want you to be my Lord, my God, my Savior. Not just in words. You truly take the throne of my heart and be my God. You call the shots from here on out. You may be here today and you've wandered away. Maybe you didn't go all the way to the pig pen, but you know you're heading that way. Turn around now. Come back to Dad. He's looking for you. He's waiting for you. And say, Lord, thank you for your grace. Forgive me today. Heal me today. Take the love of the world, the love of the things of the world out of my heart and only one love, a love for the things of you, the love for you and nothing else. Heal me, cleanse me, wash me right now. Lord, we thank you for your word and we thank you for hearing our hearts cry to you today. Do that completed work for your glory and your honor and your praise. Bless all those who have heard your word in truth. Let it be a living word that doesn't return void, but accomplishes all it was sent to do. In Jesus' precious name. And everyone said, amen, amen. Tonight, the book of Leviticus. Get here early. We'll have a time of prayer at 6 o'clock. And before you head out, say hi to somebody around you you don't know and find a prayer request. You can pray for them the rest of the week. God bless you all. Bye-bye.